It's good to be here. Well, as you see, I'm not Dr. Allen. Uh, I'm about 30 years younger. Uh, but, you know, yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, but, yeah, it's, I mean, it's so good to be with you today. Um, a little bit about myself, you know, I know a lot of y'all know me, um, some of y'all. Uh, my name is Caleb McVeigh. I am a, I was a student at the Baptist College of Florida, graduated. I'm now a middle school teacher at Bonifay K-8. And uh, just to kind of give you some of the aspirations of kind of what I would like to do in my life, you know, ultimately my main goal is I want to glorify the Lord wherever that is. Amen. And ultimately I don't know where the end goal is, but a desire of mine is I would love to spend my life sharing the gospel with Latter-day Saints, particularly in Utah. I've spent a lot of time there, um, but that, I mean, that's just that's a desire for me. And so we're going to be, we're not going to be in 1 Corinthians, sorry, but we're going to be in 1 Kings. So 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. I'm going to start off with, with a story. You know, past couple of weeks we've been having our mission teams come up who's been, who's been sent to Brazil, and they've been kind of telling a little bit about the stuff that's been happening. We also have a story that happened while I was in Brazil. Have you ever been told not to do something, but because of certain circumstances that were happening at the, at the time, you end up doing what you're told not to do? Well, I had a moment like that in Brazil. So before we went to Brazil, we had you know, our team meeting, and we're told the do's and don'ts of the jungles of Brazil. First, first rule was don't embarrass Grace and don't embarrass yourself. Okay? Okay, you know, that was, uh, I think that was pretty easy. The second one was there was a couple of hand signals, you know, we were told not to do. You know, we were told not to do this because, guess what, that is very sexual to them, and you do not want to have that conversation with one of them. And then the third thing was don't drink the water slash the coffee, which, to me, that was the easiest one because I don't like drinking water and I don't like drinking coffee. But... So that was, that was it. So we go to Brazil, and we go to a village that a lot of y'all have heard about, Aguas Mortis. And so me, we're all there, and Dane calls me and Cole, and we're like, hey, come with me. We're going to go talk to these guys. I'm like, okay, cool, cool. And, you know, to be honest, my guard was up. I was ready. I was like, don't embarrass myself. Don't embarrass Grace. Got it. Don't do this. I had my hands in my pocket. No problem. And don't drink the water. Or the coffee. And so we get there, and so we go with Dane. Me and Cohen go to Dane. We're sitting down talking with these, these Brazilians. And guess what comes up? Would you like some coffee? And I'm ready. Like mentally, I'm like saying, thank you so much, but I'm going to have to decline. I got my water right here. I got some water. Well, before I could say that, Dane steps up and says, we would love some coffee. We would love some coffee. And, you know, me, I kind of slumped back in my chair. I'm like, well, that, that, that didn't go as, as expected. You know, Dr. Allen said, hey, don't drink the water. And Dane's like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And here's the reason you don't want to drink the water. Because you drink, or you don't want to drink the water or the coffee. You drink the coffee, guess what? In the middle of the night, you're going to be on the toilet screaming. You're going to have a big mess, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, we know. And so, 
So they start pouring the coffee, and they're handing it to Dane, and Dane's handing it to us, and Dane looks at us smiling and says, okay, boys, start praying to the Lord right now. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm smiling. I'm, I'm like, I got my little spoon, and I, I drink it. And guess what happens that night? Man, I'm on the toilet screaming. I had some poopy pants, if you know what I mean. You know, we were told not to drink the coffee, but just because of circumstances, I ended up drinking the coffee, and I had to deal with the consequences. But sometimes, doing what you're told not to do, the consequences are a lot worse than having poopy pants. They're, a lot of times, they're more serious. And that's why today we're going to look at when the strong becomes roadkill. When the strong becomes roadkill. Look with me in 1 Kings 13. We're going to be, we're going to read everything. So we, I, we haven't even started and we already have to run. So let's, let's do this. 1 Kings chapter 13. Verse 1. A man of God came from Judah to Bethel by a revelation from the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing before, beside the altar to burn incense. The man of God cried out against the altar by revelation from the Lord. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David, named Josiah. And he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. He gave a sign that day. He said, this is a sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will now be ripped Apart, and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. When the king heard the word that the man of God had cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Arrest him. But the hand he stretched out against him withered, and he could not pull it back to himself. The altar was ripped apart, and the ashes poured from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God given by the word of the Lord. Then the king responded to the man of God, Plead for the favor of, your, of the Lord your God. And pray for me so that the man of God, so the man of God pleaded for the favor of the Lord. And the king's hand was restored to him. And it became as it was before. Then the king declared to the man of God, come home with me, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God replied, if you were to give me half of your house, I still wouldn't go with you. And I wouldn't eat bread or drink water in this place. For this is what the, I was commanded by the word of the Lord. You must not eat bread or drink water, or go back the way you came. So he went another way, and did not go by the way he came to Bethel. Now, a certain old prophet was living in Bethel. His sons came to him and told him all the deeds that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. His sons also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. Then their father said to them, Which way did he go? His sons had seen the way taken by the man of God who had come from Judah. Then he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey with him, and he got on it. He followed the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. He asked him, Are you the man of God which came from Judah? I am, he said. Verse 15. Then he said to him, Come home with me, eat bread. But he answered, I cannot go with you, eat bread, or drink water with you in this place. For a message came to me by the word of the Lord. You must not eat bread or drink water there. Or go back the way you came. And then the older prophet, he said, I also am a prophet like you. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. 
The old prophet deceived him. And the man of God went back with him, ate bread in his house, and drank water. While they were sitting there, while they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who brought him back. And the prophet cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says, because you rebelled against the command of the Lord and did not keep the command that the Lord your God commanded you. But you went back and ate bread and drank water in the places that he told you not to. Do not eat bread and do not drink water. Your corpse will never reach the grave of your fathers. So after he had eaten bread and after he, after he had drunk, the old prophet saddled the donkey for the prophet he had brought back. When he left, a lion attacked him along the way and killed him. His corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey was standing beside it. The lion was standing beside the corpse too. There were men who passed by who saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing beside it, and they went and spoke about it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from his way heard about it, he said, He is a man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. The Lord has given him to the lion, and, it's mauled, and it has mauled him and killed him according to the word spoken by the Lord. Then the old prophet instructed his son, Saddle the donkey for me. They saddled it, and he went and found the corpse of the man of God thrown on the road with a donkey, and the lion standing beside the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse or mauled the donkey. So the prophet lifted the corpse of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. The old prophet came into the city to mourn and bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own grave and they mourned over him. Oh, my brother. After they had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, you must bury me in the grave where this man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the word, of the, for the word that he cried out by a revelation from the Lord against the altar in Bethel, and against all the shrines of high places in the cities of Samaria is certain to happen. After all this, Jeroboam did not repent of his evil ways. But again he set priests for the high places from every class of people. He ordained whoever so desired it, and they became priests of the high places. This was a sin that caused the house of Jeroboam to be wiped out and annihilated from the face of the earth. When the strong becomes roadkill... The first point I want us to look at is that the man of God is strong when he submits to the word of the Lord. The man of God is strong when he submits to the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord called this man, from, this man of God from Judah and had him go to Bethel to pronounce judgment on the king. Now, now Jeroboam, if we, if we kind of take a little little backtrack to look at uh, what happened. Jeroboam wasn't always a king. He wasn't the son of a king, but he was an advisor to Solomon. After Solomon died, Solomon's son Rehoboam became king. But because of wicked and deceitful advice, the Lord had the kingdom stripped from him. Jeroboam had a, Jeroboam had a prophet come to him and say, Hey, guess what? The Lord has anointed you over king. You will be the king over the northern kingdom. You will be the king over Israel. And the, and the thing that the Lord told him was, if you would remain faithful to me, if you would remain faithful to my commands, you will have a long dynasty. But what we see is Jeroboam doesn't remain faithful. Jeroboam doesn't remain obedient. 
And let's be honest, obedience takes effort. Obedience takes effort. And the Lord, and, and here's the thing, submitting to the Lord is not always a walk in the park, right? You know, we submit to the Lord, it's not always roses and flowers. I mean, sometimes submitting to the Lord is a walk in the desert. Sometimes submitting to the Lord is a harsh and painful thing. You know, we don't know, like we said, we don't know much about this man of Judah. I mean, this passage is very mysterious. We don't know anything about him. But to kind of give you an idea, from Jerusalem to Bethel was about a ten and a half mile journey. So it took effort for this man of God, wherever he was in Judah, to take the trip from there to Bethel. And let's be real, it's going to take effort for us to get to where God is calling us to be. Just like the man of God had to walk from uh, Judah to Bethel, we also are on a journey ourselves. The people of God are strong when they submit to the word of the Lord. The strong, they feast on the word. They delight in the word. And they will travel to the worst conditions imaginable because they know that God is already there. And, and his word, and here's the thing, not only does he do that, but his word is commanding us to do that. I mean, his word is commanding us to go to these places, to the jungles of Brazil. You know, we have missionaries all over here who, who understand that God's command is for the nations. So the man of God is strong when he submits to the word of the Lord. And sometimes the means of how, he, of how we submit is difficult. First thing is, the man of God, he submits in unfamiliar territory. The man of God submits in unfamiliar territory. Bethel had a long history within Israel. Bethel was a place where Abraham pitched his tent. And this was a place where Abraham called on the name of the Lord. This was a place where Jacob, as he was running from Esau, he had a dream where he saw a staircase to heaven, and Jacob named this place the house of God. And he named it the gate of heaven. This was a significant place for the people of Israel, but what, but what once was familiar to them had now become unfamiliar. The split between the northern and southern kingdom, had there was this culture shift between the two. There's this culture shift. The house, the place that was called the house of God, had now become the tourist attraction of idol worship in the area. In verse 27, in verse 27, he says, if these, well, let's go back to chapter 12. Chapter 12, we kind of see Jeroboam's idolatry happening. Because right now, we're kind of stuck. We, we, see, we see all this stuff going on, and we see this man of God going, but why? Well, if you look in chapter 12, if you look in chapter 12, Jeroboam makes an altar in Bethel. And here's, why he, here's the reason he makes the altar. In verse 27, he says, If these people go up to sacrifice at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord. If the people of Israel will go back to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple that Solomon made, the people will turn back to the Lord. And Jeroboam did not want this. So he, he made his own altar. The, gates, the gate of heaven was blocked off 
by a pagan altar. And, and here, here's the thing: we see a lot of we see we see similar things happen today. You know, we we like to pride ourselves on living in the Bible Belt. You know, sorry, we're not not only do we live in the Bible Bible Belt, but we are the buckle of the Bible Belt, right? Amen. But if we if we actually start to look, we we see that the Bible Belt that 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 our grandparents saw in the Bible Belt that a lot of you who are older have saw is not the Bible Belt of today. It is unfamiliar to us. It is different. It is wicked. So I think if we kind of move past our our innocent ignorance of like of understanding that oh we live in the Bible Belt and understand that this place is different, we see something that we don't want to see. So I have some statistics. I mean they're they're pretty rough, but I want y'all to listen to them. These statistics are statistics in Florida, in the Bible Belt. In 2021, there were 80,000 abortions that happened in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And let's be honest, we can assume that there were a lot more. Of the 80,000 abortions, 46,433 were chemical. There was a 6.6% increase in total abortions in Florida. There was an 11.1% increase in total chemical abortions in Florida. And there was a 5.6% increase in the rate of abortions in Florida. 12% of abortions happened, happened to married women. And 75% were unmarried. And so kind of keeping on with this, with this, this trend... In 2021, there was 1,290 murders in Florida in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Now, this next set is, is nationwide, but let's be honest. You know, we like, to, you know, we like to talk about how America was built on Christian values, right? Look at this stat. This stat is in 2022, 6,000 kids and teens were injured or killed in shootings all across the United States. And we get we get the point. The Bible Belt that our that our grandparents saw is not the Bible Belt that we live in today. This place is unfamiliar to us, and it should be. Though our culture is changing, guess what? God's word has not changed. Though the Bible Belt has changed, God's word has not changed. And we live in this world. But we do not submit to it. We submit to the word of the Lord. We submit to God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. So the man of God is strong when he submits to the word of the Lord. He submits in unfamiliar territory. And he submits in undesirable circumstances. He submits in undesirable circumstances. Let's be honest. This, this, this trip that this man of God has taken isn't a vacation. I mean, think about it. You're called, you're called by God to go to this, this altar where people are celebrating it, that it's made. This is where the wicked king is at with all his people. And you are to tell him, thus says the word of the Lord. 
This is, a, this is an intimidating task, even for God's more, most faithful. And what makes this even more undesirable is the content of the message. He says, alter, alter. This is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David, and he will sacrifice on you the priest that, offer, that offers sacrifices there. I mean, not really, the uplift, not really an uplifting you know, sermon, right? I mean, it's not really something that you would go out of your way to, to say. If you think about it, 20 years before this, the nation of Israel was thriving. Solomon was a, was, a, was a man who God blessed, and he fell toward the end of his life. But even then, God said he would not take away the kingdom until after his death. So Israel as a nation was experiencing thriving. They were, they were experiencing success, but they do not see that anymore. And let's be honest, you know, we might be, I mean, we all are in undesirable circumstances all the time. I mean, we are in some pretty crappy situations. You know, life's hard. And, and even some of us might be at the point where we think, well, man, you know, life, a couple years ago, life was way better than it is now. You know, a couple years ago, I was living the best life I could possibly live. And now, I don't even know what's going to happen. But does not the Lord care for his children? Does not the Lord care for the birds of the air? Will he not also care for us who are made in his own image? And here's the thing, I would rather I would rather be with God when my life is going to hell than be with him when all things are going my way. Because a man of God submits in undesirable circumstances. If you're in some bad circumstances, are you still submitting to God? Or are you using all of this, all of the crap that's going on as a means to do whatever you want? The man of God is strong when he submits to the word of the Lord. He submits in unfamiliar territory. He submits in undesirable circumstances. And he submits even after unpleasant news. He submits even after unpleasant news. Not all news is good news. And even good news is bad news for some people. The man of God was to tell Jeroboam that, that a son would be born to the house of David, name-dropping him, Josiah. And he would be the one to destroy the altar and burn the priest on it. And this, you know, this has far-off implications. Like, we don't, you know, this prophet, we don't know his name. But this prophet name drops Josiah, and Josiah wouldn't come onto the scene for another 350 years. Josiah wouldn't be king for another 350 years. He name drops some dude who wouldn't be around for a while. And second off, this, is, this isn't just um, a judgment for Jeroboam, but it's also judgment for the nation of Israel. Josiah would lead... Judah to overtake the nation of Israel and he would destroy these altars. Now when you receive unpleasant news how do you respond? When scripture opens your eyes to sin how do you respond? When a brother or sister in Christ calls out sinful and destructive behaviors in your life how do you respond? I am so thankful that I've had men and women point out sinful and destructive behaviors in my life 
I'm so thankful for that. Because here's the thing. We know how Jeroboam responded. Jeroboam became furious. He stuck out his hand toward the prophet and ordered his arrest. But what happens? His hand withers. His hand withers and he could not move it. And the altar he built right there beside him cracks and splits open. When Jeroboam's sin was called out, he lashed out. When Jeroboam's sin was called out, he lashed out. You know, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing whenever brothers or sisters in Christ will have the, will have the, the confidence and boldness to look at our lives and say, hey, this right here is not healthy. This right here is not good for you. You know, that's beautiful. But even more beautiful is whenever you are, it's called out and you repent. It's even more beautiful when your sin is pointed out and you fall on your hands and knees and say, God, how did I not see this? But Lord, I'm thankful that I do see it now. You know, I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was in college, me and Colin decided to start meeting up for a little Bible study. You know, y'all know, y'all know Colin. Y'all know Colin. But, you know, we, we decided to start meeting up. And, you know, he said, you know, he, he committed to it, I committed to it. Well, you know, as a college student, you don't make a lot of money. And so one morning that we were supposed to meet, I had the opportunity to, you know, make a little extra money. So I took it. And as I was in the car about an hour from Graceville, he gets a text like, hey, man, where you at? I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to make a little extra cash. You know, I ain't got a lot of money. And, you know, in true Colin fashion, he says, that's not right. Because you've committed to this. You've committed to meeting with me. And, you know, here's the thing. I had two options. I could either get very angry really quick or I could actually see the truth that was behind it. And that was probably, that was, that was a pretty sucky ride. That was a pretty sucky ride. Because I understood that I broke my commitment. I understood that I let the desire for a little bit more money overtake the commitment that I made. See, See, when my sin was called out, I could have lashed out. And when our sins are called out, we can either lash out or we can repent. See, and let's be honest, you know, we have, I'm sure y'all can relate with me. You know, it's awesome when that happens. But so many, majority of the time, what happens we, we call out the sin of our brothers and sisters because we love them and we want them to understand that the gospel can change them. But we, we call out their sins in love and what happens? They get angry. They get angry. They lash out at us. When the word of God is preached on Sundays, you know, we, have, we have two options. We can, either, we can either agree with it and conform our lives to it or we can reject it. But so many times, you know, we have people that we love and we just want to share the gospel. We want to say, hey, your life is, you know, your life, here's what you need. Like, repent and trust in Jesus. And all they think about is they just get angry. They turn 
and they burn everything and everyone around them. And here's what happens when we do that. Just like Jeroboam, his hand withered, but what happens to us is not, it's not our hands that wither, it's our heart that withers away. Our hearts become hardened. We hear unpleasant news and we start to self-destruct. But the man of God, the woman of God, and the people of God do not self-destruct after unpleasant news. They submit even after unpleasant news. See, the man of God is strong when he submits to the word of the Lord. He submits in unfamiliar territory. He submits in undesirable circumstances. He submits even after unpleasant news. The man of God submits. The next thing that the man of God does is a man of God is strong when he stands against cultural normalcy. The man of God is strong when he stands against cultural normalcy. There was a shift that was happening within Israel. Bad kings brought bad things to the people and they started to worship it. The people of God were falling to idolatry just as they did in Egypt. And let's think about some of the things that are being normalized in our culture. I mean, I'm sure we can think of a lot of stuff. I mean, homosexuality is being normalized. I mean, I was watching football the other day on Sunday. I'm sorry. I was watching football on Sunday. And, and, and a commercial came on. It was a timeout called a commercial. And by the time the commercial ended, I saw two guys kissing each other. I mean, that is being normalized in our culture. Not only homosexuality, but think about the transgender movement. I mean, you got men and women going against their genetic makeup because it makes them feel better about themselves. And not only are they going against their genetic makeup, but you got men going around and just makeup in general. And then these same people are going to schools where, where our, our students are, where our kids are, and reading books to them. And it seems as though, as horrible as this is, it seems as though school shootings are a once-a-month occurrence now. You turn on the radio, or you turn on the TV, and somewhere, whether it's small or big, there's a school shooting somewhere. And everything, everything you could possibly see in books, Disney, or TV, wherever you look, everything is overly sexualized. And suicide, opioid addictions, divorce, and cohabitating with significant others is what is seen as the new normal. What are the people of God standing for? Because if we are not standing for God's kingdom, we are standing against it. You know, we are not citizens of this world. We should look at it and say to ourselves, though everyone else around us says this is normal, this is not normal. You know, we're good at saying this in church, but we're bad at saying this when we're in the world. We're good, at, we're, good at, we're good at saying that God's word is sufficient in church, but is it sufficient in our everyday lives? The man of God is strong when he stands against cultural normalcy. And so what are some of these cultural normalcy? Well, these next two, I'm going to kind of group them together. So he stands against wicked trends. And he stands against shameful altars. Put those two together. In chapter 12, going back to chapter 12, in 28, 28 through 33, he says, 
So the king Jeroboam sought advice. Then he made two golden calves, and he said to the people going to Jerusalem, he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. Israel, here is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He set up one in Bethel and put the other in Dan. This led the people to sin. The people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. Jeroboam also built shrines on the high places and set up priests from every class of people who were not Levites. Jeroboam made a festival in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the festival in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar. He made this offering in Bethel, Bethel to sacrifice to the calves he set up. He also stationed the priests in Bethel for the high places he had set up. He offered sacrifices on the altar he had set up in Bethel on the 15th day of the 18th month. He chose this month on his own. He made a festival for the Israelites, offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. I mean, y'all, you saw what was there? He made two golden calves. Now, where have we seen, where have we seen those heifers at before? I mean, we, we know. When we think of golden calves, we, there's a specific story in Scripture that we think about, right? I know I do. Man, we think about Exodus. We think about Moses coming off Mount Sinai. And, you know, he just, he just had an experience with Yahweh. He has the tablets. He's like, he's like, Lord, your people are ready. And he comes down the mountain, and they're dancing around. Baby cow. He's dancing around a little heifer. You know, see, sin never really changes, does it? Sin never really changes. You know, we see different trends happen. You know, we see a lot of altars around us. And, you know, there might be particular sins that we haven't seen in a long while, but guess what? Be on your guard. They will return. They will pop its head. And if you remember, a cow signified power. It signified strength. But a calf, a calf was something that could be manipulated. It was something that could be controlled. So these people were worshiping a God that could be manipulated and, and controlled and carried around. And not only did he, not only was a sin that he made two little little cows, but he also set up altars throughout the land. He made two. There were two major ones: Dan and Bethel. Bethel's where we are right now. And then he also took the high priest. Well, he took people who weren't of the tribe of Levi, made them priests, and allowed them to offer sacrifices on this counterfeit altar. See, Satan changes the packaging of deception, but he doesn't change the deception itself. You know, we like to think, we like to think back, you know, we're, we like, as Americans, we like to think back to, to these, store, these, these historical accounts in Israel, and we're like, man, they worship a cow? Come on. I'm way more evolved than that. I wouldn't worship a cow. You know, I prefer a pigskin. I prefer a pigskin. And for those who don't know, that's football. Mainly my wife. She read this last night. She's like, what is a pigskin? I'm like, it's football. But, you know, no, but we can take any, we can take anything and put it in place. Like, oh, I'm not going to worship a cow. I'm way more involved than that. I'm going to worship my, my boyfriend, girlfriend, my husband, wife. I mean, you can put so many things. If you think about it, we're not, we're not really involved that much from them. You know, our hearts, you know, our culture is an altar-producing factory. And to be even more personal, our hearts are altar or idol-making factories. Anything can and will be used against you for the conquering of your soul. 
but the man of God stands his ground. When the trend of I don't feel like going to church happens, or the altar of personal happiness demands a sacrifice for today, the man of God does not submit to it, but the man of God stands against it. So the man of God is strong when he stands against cultural normalcy. He stands against wicked trends. He stands against shameful altars, and he stands against deceitful invitations. After the, alter- after the altercation, the king orders the arrest of the man of God. He points out his finger and says, hey, that guy right there, arrest him. What happens? His hand shrivels up. Now, the whole, the whole point of the king pointing his hand was it was, a, it was a symbol of power. The king points, it happens. But guess what? God is way more powerful than some earthly king. The, man, the Jeroboam pointed his hand, but it shriveled up. Shriveled up. And so Jeroboam says, okay, okay, since I can't beat you, intercede with the Lord your God. Intercede with the Lord your God and pray that my hand might be restored. You hear that? You hear right there? Intercede with the Lord your God. Jeroboam's not saying intercede with the Lord our God. Intercede with the Lord your God. Long story short, the king's hand is restored to him. And the king kind of gets this idea, well, if I can't arrest him, maybe I can get him to join me. So he offers him the opportunity to come eat and drink with him. But the man of God does not fall to this deceitful invitation. The man of God in verse 8 says, If you were to give me half of your kingdom, I wouldn't do it. I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to drink, and I'm not going to take a reward from you. Because here's why. If the man of God would have chosen to accept the invitation, it is, what it means is that the man of God is associating himself with this pagan king. But the man of God was smarter than that. The man of God had his guard up. He was not going to accept the invitation of this evil king and ultimately condemn himself along with all of the heretics. It seems like an innocent invitation, but it was a deceitful one. You know, we receive invitations like this all the time. Every day, every day we, we receive invitations like this. And if you don't have your guard up, you will fall to the deception every single time. The man of God, the man of God had his guard up against the enemy. The man of God is, and so here's the thing, the man of God is strong when he stands against cultural normalcy. He stands against wicked trends. He stands against shameful altars. He stands against deceitful invitations. And lastly, he stands on future promises. In verse 2, the man of God says, Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of God, the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice a, high, sacrifice a priest of the high places who burn incense on you. See, what the man of God is doing is he is standing on this future promise. The king says, hey, here's this, here's this invitation. Why don't you come and why don't you eat with me? Associate yourselves with me. But what the man of God does is he says, no, there's a future king who's going to come and he's going to destroy this place. He's going to wipe you out. He's going to destroy the altars that you, worship, that you sacrifice on. He's going to destroy the priests who worship you. He's going to destroy you. This altar that you built is only temporary. Your kingship 
that you have is only temporary. And there will be another one who comes who will execute judgment. Man of God is strong when he stands against cultural normalcy. He stands against wicked trends. And he stands, he stands against shameful altars. He stands against deceitful limitations. And he stands on future promises. You know, if we were to kind of cut this off right here, we would, we would walk away thinking, man, this man of God, this man of God has it. This man of God is walking the walk. This is a perfect picture of obedience. Standing for the evil king, you know, getting offered all this money, this reward, he rejects it. But so many times our spiritual victories are tarnished by spiritual, by subtle disobedience. So many times our spiritual victories are tarnished by subtle disobedience. We fail even after we have seen and tasted the goodness of the Lord. And it's heartbreaking that we have men and women who, who started out so strong in the faith. Men and women who, to our eyes, looked like they were advancing the kingdom of God. But what ultimately happened is they let little sins that they've hidden away from the public cripple them and destroy them. See, the man of God is strong when he submits to the word of the Lord, and he is strong when he stands against cultural normalcy. But we have more believers that live their life as roadkill in the kingdom than, than living it as strong. And here's the thing about roadkill. First off, I mean, I'm sure everyone in here this week has seen something dead on the road. Amen. It's three of them. A lot. And here's some things about roadkill. First off, it ain't moving, man, because it's dead, you know. It's dead. It's just a pile of decomposing flesh on the side of, on the side of our road. It's not moving. It's immobilized. Do you want to be roadkill? Do you want to be immobilized? And here's here's another thing about about roadkill. Most roadkill, guess what? Guess what? Splattered everywhere. Their guts, right? Everything that's inside of them is is out there for everyone to see. And that's the thing. If we live our lives as roadkill, eventually everything that is hidden within us is going to be public display. You know, logically, we don't want to be roadkill. Logically, we want to be strong. But practically and spiritually, many believers are walking around as dead roadkill. But the man of God is strong when he submits to the word of the Lord. And he's strong when he stands against cultural normalcy. But he is roadkill when he is seduced by familiar comforts. As the man of God was leaving... An old prophet, we don't, again, we don't know who this old prophet is. I'm telling you, this is mysterious. Like, who's the man of God? Who's the old prophet? We don't know. But this, this old prophet heard, and so he hurried and saddled his donkeys, and he went out to try to find the man of God. And let's be honest, this man of God was probably weary. You know, he's probably, you know, we don't know how long he hasn't eaten. He's probably thirsty. And let's be honest, if you've ever had a spiritual encounter with the enemy, guess what? You are exhausted. If you ever, you ever taught, Anywhere, by the time you're done, you are exhausted. So this man was physically and spiritually exhausted. And this prophet comes up to him and says, Hey, why don't you come back home with me? Let me get you some food. Let me give you some water. You know, let's just have a good time. I know you're tired. This was an act of seduction. 
the Lord said to the, the, the man of God, don't eat or drink or go back the way you came. So far, he has successfully not went back the way he came. You know, he successfully rejected the evil king's offer. But it is when a fellow prophet, it is when a familiar figure to him comes to him, he lets his guard down. He lets his guard down. And to be honest, most of the time we are not seduced by something far-fetched out there. We're not seduced by something weird. We're usually seduced by things that look very familiar to us. They're just a little bit different. Just a little bit different. You know, we like to let our guard down when we're safe, right? I mean, I do. When I get home, I'm watching football. There's not a lot of stuff going on in this, in this empty head right here when there's football on. You know, when we're safe, we let our guard down. But guess what? The man of God was not safe. So the man of God is real okay when he's seduced by familiar comforts. What are some of these familiar comforts? Well, the first thing was he is seduced by a familiar identity. He's seduced by a familiar identity. This was an older prophet of Yahweh. This was a man who once walked in the way of the Lord. This was a comfortable person for the younger man. But there should have been some red flags. There should be some red flags. When we read this, there should be some red flags. First off, why is this old prophet of Yahweh living in Bethel? Why is this old prophet, this man who once walked with Yahweh, living in the very place where this evil altar is, where these pagan worships are going on, where these sacrifices are going on, where all these people are, are going around, casting their body to all these foreign gods? Why is a man of God there? That should be the first red flag we, look, we think about. And why does God have to send a man from Judah to Bethel when there is a perfectly good prophet already there? The second thing is, in verse 16, after the old, older prophet asked him to get some food, uh, the man of God says, I can't turn back and go with you. See, the man of God was trying to convince this, this man, of, the, the old prophet was trying to convince this man of God to go back the way he came, to go back to the, to the paganism that was in Bethel. He should have said no. He had the word of the Lord. He should have said no. To go back to where the golden calves were, to go back where this king was, he should have said no. See, the man of God was not seduced by some, some unfamiliar, silver-tongued weirdo. But he was seduced by the actions of a man he trusted. So he's seduced by familiar identity, and next he is seduced by a familiar experience. Gotta run. The older prophet said, come, eat and drink with me. For an angel came and told me to bring you back. Man, let's be honest. We don't know what happened, but let's be honest... It could have been an angel. It could have been a demonic angel. Because here's the thing. Angels are still deceiving people today. You know, I told you that I enjoy, you know, I would love to engage with Mormons. Guess what? Y'all know how that one went? A little boy named Joseph Smith had a vision with an angel. Angel Moroni. And the angel told him where these golden plates were. And this boy went out and he digged and he found them. Found them. Um, and guess what? Guess what? Because of this angelic deception, did you know that Mormonism is the biggest made-in-America religion that we have today? 
Homegrown in the USA, baby. Mormonism. And not only that, think about a world religion. You know the fastest growing world religion in the world is Islam. You know how that one got started? Muhammad was in a cave one day, and the angel Gabriel came to him and said, Hey, let me tell you about the scriptures. Islam, fastest growing religion in the world. See, angels are still deceiving people today. And that's why Paul in Galatians 1 says, If I or an angel from God comes to you and preach a, a gospel different than the one that you received, let him be let him be a curse. Let him be an anathema. Probably my favorite Greek word to know. Anathema means to be damned. It is the severest condemnation. It is to be like, if I preach you a gospel, then let me be eternally separated from everything. Let me be cast to the deepest pit of hell if I come. This prophet should have been aware. He wasn't. So next, he was seduced by a familiar message. He was seduced by a familiar message. Not only was he seduced by a familiar identity and a familiar experience, but the old prophet said, I'm a prophet just like you, and an angel of the Lord came to me by the word of the Lord. You hear that? By the word of the Lord. This guy is saying that the word of the Lord came to me, and I know he said, I know he said you do one thing, but this is what you really got to do. That's why I had Miss Amy read Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. If a prophet among you will do signs and wonders, and if these wonders take place, but they say, follow after other gods, do not listen to them. This prophet should not have listened to this old man. See, this is what happens when you put your guard down. The man of God had stood before Jeroboam. He and he, he stood before Jeroboam and wouldn't accept the offer. But when his guard should have been up, it wasn't. He fails. And here's the thing. If it's not the will of God, or it's not the will of God if it goes against the word of God. It's not the will of God if it goes against the word of God. So he was seduced by a familiar message, and he was seduced by a familiar setting. He was seduced by a familiar setting. Do you know when temptation hits me the strongest? To be honest, it's at my house. I'm usually most tempted when I'm at my house, when I'm at my most comfortable. And we usually aren't beaten in the places where we are aware of the fight. We're usually beaten in the places that we think we're the safest at. Because if the enemy can beat you at your home, it can beat you anywhere. Man of God became roadkill because he let his guard down since he was in a familiar setting. He was at the prophet's house. He was at the man of God who knew God. But what made him think that he was all right to be complacent while he was still in Bethel? You know, we need to be careful because yesterday's spiritual victories doesn't ensure today or tomorrow's success. And our spiritual discipline are not just for the world, but they are for our homes. And we should be careful that our commitment to the Lord at church should be on par or better at home. Because if not, the believer will be roadkill. So the last point, the man of God is roadkill when he succumbs to innocent mistakes. 
He is roadkill when he succumbs to innocent mistakes. We are losing the battle of holiness, not because of big, blatant moral failures, but because of little, innocent sins. I mean, the man of God ate some food, drank some water. I mean, what's the problem? You know, what's, what's so wrong about that? Well, it's because God commanded him not to do it. And after the, this, prophet, this old prophet, after the man of God ate, this old prophet who lied to him has a legit message from the Lord. Must have been awkward. This way he says, This is what the Lord says, Because you rebelled against the command of the Lord and did not keep the command that the Lord your God commanded you. But you went back and ate bread and drank water in the places that he said to you, Do not eat bread and do not drink water. Your corpse will never reach the grave of your fathers. See, there are so many, there are so many sins that are seen as more, more as little accidents rather than rebellion against God. I mean, to name a few, gossip, you know, slander, you know, lust. I mean, think about murder. I mean, I mean, we don't. I mean, we obviously murder is like one of the top sins we don't do. But I mean, we we hate people all the time. We don't even look at it the way God looks at it. I mean, these are sins that we and our culture looks at as. Oh, I mean, that's bad. But like, I mean, at least you didn't. You know, at least you didn't kill someone for real. You know. But little sins, little mistakes will, will leave us roadkill every single time. And it's because he lets physical desires overtake spiritual commands. He lets physical desires overtake spiritual commands. You know, we, we talked about it. The man of God was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. But we have to discipline our physical body so that it doesn't control us, but we control it. See, the man of God gave up his integrity for a warm meal and some cold water. You know, our, our world cares about personal happiness. And we go around saying, who cares what the Bible says as long as I'm happy? You can't say anything to me because I'm happy and, and God wants me to be happy, right? I mean, that's what our world thinks. But there's this saying that I heard a long time ago. This man told me, he says, he's like, Caleb, there are two types of pain in this life. There's the pain of discipline, and there's the pain of regret. Now, here's the difference between the two. The pain of discipline is over after the mission is accomplished. Why? Because you're so overjoyed with the success that you no longer feel the pain that it took to get there. But the pain of regret, that, that lingers. The pain of regret stays in the back of your, your mind saying you're a failure. And though so many of us, and, and the thing is so many of us would rather live with the pain of regret than the pain of discipline. Because let's be honest, regret is a lot easier. Having regret is easier than discipline yourselves. And that will leave you roadkill every single time. So the man of God is roadkill when he succumbs to innocent mistakes because he lets his physical desires overtake spiritual commands. And lastly, he fails to see the gravity of sin. He fails to see the gravity of sin. We tend to look at this passage... 
and think that the man of God's sin was lesser than Jeroboam's or the older prophet. I mean, shoot, Jeroboam was the king who led his people to worship idols. I mean, that's pretty bad, right? I mean, let's be honest. We like to think that the old prophet who, who claimed to be a representative of Yahweh has now led this faithful man of God to sin. Now, I mean, that's pretty bad too. But it's the sin of the man of God that ends in death. And because of this sin, he is no longer seen as a hero of the story. Let me ask you, who's the hero of the story then? Who do you think the hero of the story is? It's the lion. The lion is the hero of the story. Why? Well, think with me. God commanded Jeroboam to walk faithfully according to his commands so that he might have a long rule. Failed. The man of God was called to not eat or drink, to not go back the way he came. Failed. The old prophet lied to the man of God and deceived him. And he became complacent in his old age because he thought it was, it was maybe a smart idea to say, live in Bethel. Failed. But who's the only person in this story who does not eat? It's the lion. The lion. In verse 24 and 25, Now he had gone and a lion met him on the, had met him on the way and killed him, and his body was thrown on the ground with the donkey standing beside it. The lion was standing beside the body also. And behold, men passed by and saw that the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside it. So they came and told about it in the city. Jeroboam ate some food. Man of God ate some food. The old prophet ate some food. But the lion did not eat the body. And how is it that a lion can obey God better than his own people? A lion is called to sovereignly attack this man of God and to kill him and not to touch the body. And he obeys. God places stars in the sky and tells them to stay where they are and they stay. And God tells the ocean to not come past this point and it, and it obeys. But when it comes to you and me, God commands us to do something. But we have the audacity to look God back in the face and say no. Man of God is roadkill. And he succumbs to innocent mistakes. Faithful obedience doesn't stop when we seek success. It continues even after we seek success. I heard this on the radio. You know, character is invisible until it's not. You know, character is invisible until it's not. You know, is your guard up? Are you faithfully pursuing the Lord? Are you ready for the battle? Because a battle will come for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you right now, Father, and we thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful that, Lord, you're good to us, Father. Lord, let us be the lion, and let us not be lion. Lord, let us, let us understand that, that in this story, there was a prophet who lied, and there was a prophet who died. And Father, let us not be, let us not be like that. Father, we want to be. Obedient to your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.